This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. As we give you news from an African perspective, we are coming to you live from Johannesburg. You can find us on 9625 kHz. That's on the 31 meter band if you are in Southern Africa. You can also find us on channelafrica.co.za. My name is Spomele Lezonde. I'm with Joala Netulo, Wizani Matebula and Mosibudi Makura. Your top stories. Opposition parties in the DRC warned the government against trying to prevent Jean-Pierre Bemba from coming back. The UN General Assembly to vote on a resolution seeking protection for Palestinians in Gaza. In economics, a Kenyan lawmaker vows to champion a proposed law that seeks to ban exports of unprocessed coffee. And in sport, Spain's preparations thrown into disarray a day before the start of the World Cup. Chola Netsulo has your news. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. Former Vice President of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Jean-Pierre Bemba, is awaiting his release from a detention centre in The Hague. Judges at the ICC ordered him to be let out after his convictions for war crimes and crimes against humanity were overturned. Jack Parrow reports from The Hague. Jean-Pierre Bembegombo returns to Belgium 10 years after he was arrested there and transferred here to the International Criminal Court's detention centre here in The Hague. And that was as his trial started for war crimes and crimes against humanity relating to crimes that the ICC still says were definitely committed in the Central African Republic after Jean-Pierre Bemba sent in his MLC troops to quash a coup against the then president of the Central African Republic, Ange Felix Patas. That was in 2002 and 2003. Now, he was convicted of those crimes in 2016 and sentenced to 18 years in prison. But just last Friday, the appeals chamber of the International Criminal Court overturned that conviction. The International Criminal Court... The International Criminal Court has... The International Criminal Court has launched a fund over 1 million US dollars for victims of a militia once run by former Congolese Vice President Jean-Pierre Bemba. The fund will be dispensed to people who suffered at the hands of Bemba, uh, Bemba's militia rather, in the Central African Republic. Efforts are underway to arrange a crucial meeting between South Sudan President Salva Kiyan and his opponent Rick Machon. The meeting is expected to take place in Sudan's capital Khartoum at a date yet to be announced. Uh, experts based in South Sudan's capital Juba have presented varying views on the current situation in the country and the upcoming crucial meeting. Political and military expert Lam Akol Ajawin says the upcoming meeting between President Kier and Mashar will not end the ongoing war. If IGAD is to be consistent with itself, the agreement they brokered in 2015 has been violated and is not working. Therefore, the first question that we should ask ourselves is why did all this happen and why is it that there is a new conflict that has gone beyond the initial one to cover the whole country? All this is because Salva Kiir, president in government of South Sudan, vowed from the very beginning that he will not implement the agreement and he went ahead violating it. 
Amnesty International is calling for an end to unnecessary and excessive force on both sides of security forces and separatists seeking an English-speaking region in Cameroon. In a report published on Tuesday, the human rights group says civilians are caught in a deadly escalation of violence. Cameroon's highest government official, Shu Kanikas Namfur in Jigwa, says the fighting scares the population and thousands have fled to the bushes. We are struggling to get in connection with the funds of the nine villages so that they should talk to their people, that they should have confidence in the forces of law and order who are here to guarantee their security. The government is in place, the forces of law and order, they are there to continue with our routine activities. And finally, the Italian Foreign Ministry says it has summoned the French diplomat after France accused it of being irresponsible for not taking in rescue ship, a rescue ship rather, carrying more than 600 migrants. Italy's new populist government promised to be uncompromising on immigration. Leonard Doyle from the International Organization for Migration says the Italian government was not rejecting refugees outright but was sending a message to other European countries. I think what it does is it puts it right back where it belongs, at the feet of the European Union leadership. There's 28 of them. Many of them have been ignoring this issue or are standing on the sidelines commenting. The burden is on Italy primarily, and it's probably going to create a big crisis at the end of the month. Whether that will resolve anything, we don't know, but it certainly comes to the attention of the European leadership that they need to get busy about it. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you very much, Jolana. Your time is 17.05 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest. On Channel Africa, as we continue to give you news from an African perspective, let's start in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where opposition has warned the country's government against trying to prevent Jean-Pierre Bemba from returning and be part of the upcoming elections. Bemba was released on bail from the International Criminal Court on Tuesday. The DRC ruling coalition has expressed satisfaction to see a Congolese free, but some experts believe the country's electoral law doesn't allow his candidacy for next December elections. Jean-Noël Bamwenza reports from Kinshasa. The opposition here in the Democratic Republic of Congo believes that the end of the Jean-Pierre Bemba case is being closed forever after the International Criminal Court decided to release him on bail on Tuesday. The ICC final decision about Bemba's case on bribing witnesses will be known on July the 4th. That former deputy president of the Democratic Republic of Congo is now in Belgium and might come back home any time according to his party, the Movement for Liberation of Congo, MLC. Bemba is described as the only serious opponent able to face the ruling coalition today. The opposition has warned authorities here do not have to try and prevent his coming back home. And according to this opposition MP Toussaint Alonga, Jean-Pierre Bemba remains the most famous political leader in the Western DRC. This is a major political event. Bemba was the actual challenger, the current president faced in 2006 and today he's the political balance that comes back. Remember, he remains the most famous leader in the country's west. In the ruling coalition, some people we have spoken to have expressed the satisfaction to see Jean-Pierre Bemba recovering his freedom and say they wish he should come back home. 
But what they tried to explain is that Bemba is still has so much to do in order to recover the popularity he has lost. And according to this member of the ruling majority, John Mwika, Jean-Pierre Bemba will have it very difficult to convince people who still keep bad memories of what happened here in Kinshasa after the 2006 elections. Congolese people. They having tendance also, they having a way to see things. To be in prison is not a favor. You can't compare that to Mandela. According to the current situation, Bemba is not going to have more power like he did have before. Because there's many people from his party that did leave. He have to do better. I don't know if he can convince Congolese people. Many of them, they having in memory the sin of violence committed uh, after the, the, the election uh, 2006. There was a war in Kinshasa. Many people, they know that. And it was his people who did start with that story. He have to convince people. And he's having a short time to make it. He did not be in contact with the population. It's going to be very difficult for him. And according to the Deputy Secretary General of the ruling coalition, who is also the Minister of Town Planning and Housing, competing with Jean-Pierre Bemba or whoever else, the most important is that winning remains the only aim. Joseph Kokonyangi. Jean-Pierre Bemba has already competed. Jean-Pierre Bemba has already competed against us in 2006 and then should he he be a candidate or not will respect our winning slogan we win we win and we will win at all levels Jean-Pierre Bemba's political party the movement for liberation of Congo believes it's the only candidate for the upcoming presidential election remains the chairman as he's well known here but law experts here have explained that Jean-Pierre Bemba doesn't qualify for the December polls since he's no more in line with the electoral law and the Independent National Electoral Commission won't be able to accept him for the competition. One of those experts is Charles Mushizi from the Study Center for Justice Reforms. The electoral law says that he must be uh, living in DRC for one year before put his candidacy. This is not the case because he has been uh, all this time, 10 years, in the ICC in the prison. The electoral law as well as the constitution say that uh, to be a eligible as the head of, uh, of the state, you mustn't be uh, condemned for intentional offenses. Also, this is not a case because uh, Mr. Bemba was condemned for one year. He was accused to have corrupted witnesses in his case. And now the only debate here in Kinshasa at this time is Jean-Pierre Bemba will be allowed to put his candidacy or not. Most of voters remain in confusion since Bemba's party continues to call on supporters to get prepared as their natural candidate is on his way. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. The UN General Assembly will vote tomorrow on a draft resolution calling for the protection of Palestinian civilians in Gaza. It underscores the growing international concern over the situation in the Strip. Two million people there live with a crumbling infrastructure, a paralyzed economy and an electricity crisis. Despite this, the United States has cut off vital funding to the UN's agency for Palestinian refugees. But as the BBC's Nada Taufik reports, 
Across the United States, American citizens are stepping up. The lights go out like this all the time. Electricity is scarce here. Many times we eat in complete darkness, just like we're doing right now. To imagine the life of Palestinian refugees in Gaza, the lights are turned down and just one lantern shines at Casa La Femme restaurant in New York. In the dim room, those picked from the crowd of 200 read out powerful accounts from refugees. My husband, our two small children, and I live in one room together. The bathroom serves as the toilet, the shower, the sink for bathing, cleaning, and even cooking. This iftar, or meal, is just one of 50 dinners being held across the country by the charity UNRWA USA during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan to feed refugee families in Gaza. And it comes at a critical time, just as a key lifeline for these refugees is under threat. We could run out of money for that food in Gaza in one month. Peter Mulrain is the New York director of UNRWA, the UN's relief and works agency for Palestinian refugees. It provides critical services such as food, health care and education. He says the agency now faces an existential crisis after the United States, its top donor, suddenly withheld $300 million in funds. I asked if he was concerned that this decision by the Trump administration was politically motivated. We're very concerned about the fact that that appears to be the case. One of the clear humanitarian principles is the question of neutrality, that you base your decisions on humanitarian assistance solely on the need of those who are out there. And if that's not the case, then this is a terrible precedent that the U.S. is setting a country that used to be one of the leaders of humanitarian policy turning in a different direction. That was also a worry of many others in attendance, such as Abigail Metzger and Megan Byrne, who do not agree with their government's decision. It is just unbelievable that our government would would even think to renege on a commitment. I feel like we have been you know, told that we have to make a choice, and we don't have to make a choice. We can support the Palestinian struggle without abandoning our uh, alliance and or support of Israel. Especially in the current political climate, people get very ensconced in their own biases and sort of forget to think about the day-to-day -day lives of human beings. Just $150 can feed a refugee family of six for an entire summer. This one iftar will raise $50,000 for UNRWA's food assistance program, and a global fundraising campaign has brought in new funding. Still, it's unlikely that the agency will be able to overcome its current deficit without the United States. In the long term, though, UNRWA hopes these events and crowdfunding will help build financial and public support. And that's something Abby Smartin, who's the executive director of the charity UNRWA USA, says she's already seeing. With things like social media and having the ability to actually see the situation in real time with a more unfiltered view, People are starting across the United States to see this issue very differently than they once did. And they're, they're starting to understand that Palestine and support for Palestinian refugees is a social justice issue. And so I can tell you there are you know, countless new supporters that we have who have no personal connection to the issue of Palestine or Palestinian refugees, but they care about social justice and they care about human rights. The people of Gaza have endured multiple conflicts and an 11-year blockade by Israel. The risk is that the U.S. decision will only add to their misery. The report was done by the BBC's Nada Taufik.
South Africa, it's here. The inaugural Soweto International Jazz Festival 2018. It's a global celebration of Soweto from Thursday, June the 14th to Sunday, June the 17th at the state-of-the-art Soweto Theatre Festival Complex. Join Channel Africa as we broadcast live from the inaugural Soweto International Jazz Festival 2018. Channel Africa bringing you the African Perspective. It is 1716 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Now this year, South Africa's Youth Month commemoration takes place in conjunction with the centenary celebration of Nelson Mandela and Albert, Albertina Sisulu. The United Nations also celebrates a Youth Day citing youth as agents of positive change and their inclusion in society. Charity organizations such as Africa Tikkun are also doing their bit to commemorate the month. For more on this, we're now joined on the line by Onye Nwaneri, who is Group Executive of Partnerships and Marketing at Africa Tikkun. Good evening and thank you very much for joining us. Good evening. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, now, can you just tell us about um, your programs that focus on the youth? Well, um, Africa Tikkun is an organization that is 24 years old, and uh, Africa Tikkun's focus is to enable young people to be economically empowered. And we do that by developing young people through our cradle-to-career model. That model specifically um, develops or invests in the development of a child across the different stages of the development of the child, foundation phase, school-going phase, post-matric phase, with the ultimate intention of empowering that young person and facilitating that young person to access employment or self-employment. Mm, um, and how big of a challenge is it in the Africa context? Well, as, as you know, uh, unemployment is a big issue in the African continent as a whole. Um, uh, African continent um, is seen as a youth population. Um, majority of each population are between the age of 15 to 29, uh, if you stretch it to 35. In fact, the actual age, if you look at South African context, majority of, of the youth of South Africa is sitting in that age range, you know, up to 24. And in the unemployment, if you look at the statistics, unemployment uh, statistics released for 2017, over 67% of, of, of young people between the age of 15 to 24 are currently unemployed. So we've got a big problem. We've got a, a huge youth population who are currently unable to access the economy and the possibility of accessing the economy is almost um, very limited. And that's why uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that some people have come up with the phrase that a lot of young people are not in education, not in employment, or in any uh, uh, form of, you know, um, entrepreneurial development activity. So we, we call them the meat group, um, um, who, you know, they're not in, in education employable or in employment. So um, if you look at it from our angle, we're actually in a very um, terrible situation, a very dire situation that we should uh, use youth month to create awareness that uh, the young people of South Africa are the future, and if we want to have a sustainable future, 
that we need to start taking steps to make sure that these young people are able to, you know, break away from the neat position. Um, and do young people nowadays think differently? We always hear buzzwords like millennials, um, talking about people born after 1980, including the year two, uh, up to in, and including the year 2000. And apparently they think differently from people born prior to that, in, where, especially when it comes to the job sector. Now that's correct. Um, definitely uh, the young people of today think very differently. Um, in our own experience, a lot of young people uh, want quick wins. Uh, they want to achieve a result instantly um, because, you know, they feel in the, in the, you have instant satisfaction with the, the advent of technology. With technology, they are able to access the world. They are able to get instant friends. They are able to get instant emotional release and satisfaction. And so when it comes to accessing the economy and, uh, or, or being able to achieve um, some form of progress in their lives, expect that to also be instant, which is very different from the generation prior to it or the generation before them. And, for example, in our experience uh, working with young people, you know, they want to be CEO tomorrow, they want to end their first salary, um, a substantial amount of their first salary without any job experience. So um, you are right. Um, it, it, it's a very interesting population. And our job as the generation before them or the generation who have given back to them uh, is to guide them, to explain to them and to nurture them and direct them in, to, towards a path that will enable them um, to still achieve the objective but in a more um, a realistic way. Um, and now let's talk about the youth of 1976 in South Africa. These are young people who were fighting for free education, killed for their fight for free education. What legacy um, can today's youth use to honor um, the youth of 1976? What can they do to honor them? And I suppose um, Nelson Mandela, as well as it is uh, his centenary in South Africa, or all over the world, really. Yeah, um, uh, yeah as you mentioned, uh, this year is the 100th year of, of Nelson Mandela, who is also our patron in chief in memoriam. Um, this is a year that we mark, you know, the legacy that he left, uh, which is also linked to the legacy of the youth of 1976. The legacy that the youth of 1976 was fighting for is the legacy of freedom, is the legacy of being able to access education, to act, to re, to seek the realization of their rights in a way that is acceptable and meets the requirements that they expect, you know, in terms of those rights. That's the same thing that Nelson Mandela fought for as well. He was fighting for an equal society that is free from discrimination, where everyone is able to access their socioeconomic rights, and whether that right is the right to education, the right to health care, the right to freedom from discrimination, or even the basic right of respect as in terms of human dignity. And I think that's what the youth of 1976 fought for. And the truth is the youth of 2018 are very, very um, privileged in the sense that, you know, they don't have to fight for those rights anymore. They don't have to fight to walk on the streets free. They don't have to, do, to fight to... To, 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 to access education. And so the 24 years of democracy, you know, of South Africa is a great legacy that we have to be thankful for and our young people need to be thankful for. But most importantly, it's a, it's, it's a legacy that they can build on. So how mm. can they 
you know, take it to the next level in terms of what has already been fought for? How can, instead of trying to tear it down or looking for, you know, a way out, um, as the truth is, uh, um, mm. there's a, a term that says, you know, Aluta continues, um, um, Victoria Asata, the struggle, the struggle never finishes. The struggle um, um, from one generation to the other may be different, but it can be um, a, a, a building on top of each other. In 1976, they fought for a different fight. It's um, not the realization of a different objective. Yeah. But now the fight is a different fight, and it's a fight for unemployment, a fight for skills, a fight um, to have a voice um, in, in, in many respects. Um, Anya, would you say that fight for education has been won? We've seen um, uh, protests in South Africa of late in the last uh, two to three years, uh, which were dubbed the fees must fall protests and people talking about the decolonization of university education in South Africa, for example. So would you say that fight for education was ever won? Um, in our opinion of Africa Picon, um, we believe that the fight for education was won, maybe not quality education, but at least there was um, if there is currently universal access to education from preschool to primary school, and government is doing whatever they can. And the government, Department of Social Development and Department of Education, is one of the strategic partners of Africa Picon, and we know that they are doing what they can, uh, given limited resources and limited, you know, um, this, given the circumstance to try and bring that to life. And more importantly, in the last one year, if you listen to our president, Cyril Ramaphosa, he, he, uh, um, even before him, the former president, Dick Zuma, you know, announced free education for, 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 for university education, for university uh, or tertiary students, which his successor, Ramaphosa, yeah. then announced free education for first-year students. I, I, are we, where, are we, are we uh, where we need to be mm-hmm. Yes. No. But have there been significant successes tried made? Yes. And I think you cannot capture oh, them in a day. In our opinion, um, yeah. I think a lot has been achieved compared to 1976. And I, I think yes. we can only build on it. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for your time. Onyin Waneri there is a group executive of partnerships and marketing at Africa Tikun. Now the convoy carrying hundreds of migrants rescued by the Aquarius ship is en route to Spain. The passengers of the Aquarius, who are over 600, were saved in the Mediterranean over the weekend. They were however stranded in international waters of Italy and Malta following a refusal from the two nations to take them in. The migrants are expected to arrive in Spain to, uh, by the end of the the week. Here's Jane Robotata. Spain has come to the rescue of the 629 migrants rescued in the Mediterranean but had to remain at sea while the two nations with the closest ports of safety refused them entry. Italy and Malta denied the rescue vessel Aquarius which is run by the French charity SOS Mediterranean and the global medical aid agency Doctors Without Borders or MSF prompting Spain's decision to offer a safe harbor in Valencia. However, it remains unclear whether the Aquarius would feasibly be able to make the voyage given the distance to Valencia. Commenting on the developments is MSF's Bori Lagrange. Normally, under normal circumstances, if we did a rescue in the central Mediterranean, it's a day or so sailing to reach the, the coast of Italy and then to disembark people. Now, potentially, it's sail for a further four days with that same number of people on the boat.
to reach Valencia. So this situation is untenable for a large number of people. So this includes children. Uh, there's at least six pregnant women aboard the uh, boat. But the, the concern that we have is that there's several people who have suffered orthopedic injuries and they've developed infections and these need immediate surgical evaluation and potentially operations. We can't do that on the boat at the moment. So it means wherever they disembark, they need really urgent medical attention for their injuries. Then there's also 21 people who have suffered chemical burns. The United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR, has commended the Spanish government for its decision to allow migrant ship Aquarius to dock. UNHCR Chief Charlie Yexley. It's exactly this kind of display of solidarity that's needed throughout Europe in order to tackle the refugee crisis and ensure that countries are fairly and equally bearing the responsibility for receiving people fleeing war, violence and persecution. However, this is not the only boat at sea, raising questions as to what will happen to migrants the next time they are turned away. Well, saving lives has to be the the key priority and it has to remain at the forefront of people's thinking. Political discussions about who has responsibility for which region and under what circumstances are valid ones, but they can and should come only after one's lives are no longer at stake. According to reports, an Italian Coast Guard vessel has docked in Catania, Sicily, with over 900 migrants on board, in a sign that Italy is still accepting some migrants, but is forcing other nations to share the burden. Italy says it cannot accept hypocritical lessons about migration from other countries that have always preferred to look away. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg. It's time for your news headlines. Here's Chola Netulo. Thank you, Spumalele. Making headlines, former Vice President of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Jean-Pierre Bemba, is awaiting his release from a detention center in The Hague. Efforts are underway to arrange a crucial meeting between South Sudan President Salva Kiir and his military appoint, appoint, opponent, rather, Rick Machar. And finally, the Italian Foreign Ministry says it has summoned the French diplomat after France accused it of being irresponsible for not taking in a rescue ship carrying more than 600 migrants. Fortunately, Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. South Africa, it's here. The inaugural Soweto International Jazz Festival 2018. It's a global celebration of Soweto from Thursday, June 14th to Sunday, June 17th at the state-of-the-art Soweto Theatre Festival Complex. Win tickets to Soweto International Jazz Festival 2018. Just answer the following simple question. Name two languages that Channel Africa broadcasts in. Name two languages that Channel Africa broadcasts in. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. 
Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. If you're interested in a real-life story of friendship, then join Channel Africa for a book reading of 65 Years of Friendship, written by George Bezos about his relationship with African icon Nelson Mandela. From Monday to Thursday at 2200 Central African Time and during the weekend on Saturday and Sunday at 800 hours Central African Time. Join us for 65 Years of Friendship, a real-life drama. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Seventeen thirty-three Central African Time. Now, the significant challenges in diagnosing TB in people with HIV have come under the microscope as discussions continue at the fifth South African TB conference underway in South Africa's city of Durban. The four-day event has attracted health delegates from various backgrounds in Southern Africa. Studies show that TB remains one of the top killer diseases globally. In South Africa alone, the lung disease remains a major health burden with scores of people who are still undiagnosed and untreated. More from Dr. Jorgen Pile, Deputy General for Communicable Diseases, Non-Communicable Diseases, Mental Prevention and Rehabilitation at the Department of Health. We have these two epidemics which are running feeding each other. Of course, the TB epidemic started a long time ago. The HIV epidemic is around 30 years old. And the TB epidemic in South Africa is being really fueled by a number of things, including the migrant labor system that was used under apartheid, together with the poor conditions that migrant workers had to endure. And of course, generally the poor conditions that African people in particular in South Africa had to endure. And of course, once we started experiencing HIV, 60% of people with HIV contract TB in South Africa. Much higher in other parts of the southern eastern Africa. For example, in Swaziland, it's about 80%. And that's because HIV weakens the immune system and makes people more vulnerable to other infectious diseases like TB. At the moment, we have an estimated 7.1 million people in South Africa of the 55 million people who live in this country who are HIV positive. And each year currently, we register over 200,000 new cases of people with TB who are newly infected with TB. Would you say that the emergence of multidrug-resistant TB is compounding this problem? No, indeed it is, for a number of reasons. One is that we thought a few years ago that this was a consequence of a TB program that wasn't curing people and people were getting reinfected and therefore there were these mutations of the TB bacteria. We now know there's also person-to-person transmission 
of multiple drug-resistant TB. Now, what that means is that we are finding that people who have never had TB and never been treated for TB are now getting not drug-sensitive TB but drug-resistant TB. We have currently about 19,000 people in South Africa who are currently on treatment for drug-resistant TB. It takes much longer to cure. The cure rates are much lower. The number of medicines one has to take is large, so it's not pleasant at all. And are there any significant obstacles in diagnosing TB in people with HIV? Well, we're getting much better at diagnosing uh, TB and people with HIV because we are using the latest diagnostic tools, which is GeneXpert. The uh, most recent version of it, called Ultra, is even more sensitive and specific. So we are indeed finding people with TB who also have HIV. The challenge in diagnosing TB is in children largely because, as you know, children have great difficulty in coughing up sputum. And the current diagnostic test requires sputum on the basis of which to make a diagnosis. The other big challenge in diagnosing TB is that we don't have a point-of-care diagnostic tool. You know, unlike HIV, we have this rapid diagnostic test, including malaria. We have rapid diagnostic tests for malaria as well. But for TB, you'll have to send the specimen, which in this case is a sputum, to a laboratory to be diagnosed. And in most instances, the labs are far away from where the patients are, which means that the patients have to come back to hear whether they are they tested positive or not and to start treatment. Is the impact of TB just as significant on those who are taking antiretroviral treatment? Yes, so that's why one of the things we now do is when we test all HIV-positive people for TB as well, and if they are negative and we know that they are at high risk for contracting TB, we provide them with prophylaxis. At the moment, the drug is called isoniazid, so patients are put on the drug called isoniazid for a year to protect them from getting TB when they are HIV positive. And that decreases the mortality rate of people who are HIV positive because, as you may know, the most frequently occurring cause of mortality in HIV patients is TB. You know, most patients die of TB if they're HIV positive, not HIV, especially if they are on antiretroviral and are virally suppressed. Now, let's talk about the country's efforts to prevent and treat both HIV and TB. Are they being tackled in isolation or have efforts been coordinated? So we have taken the view since 2009 that because these diseases are two sides of the same coin, we have to deal with them as one issue. And because they happen in the same individual in 60% of the time, We've got to treat patients as people first, as opposed to people with diseases. So we've been integrating our services since 2009. And that basically means that when you get an HIV test, you will be screened for TB and vice versa. And the same facilities should be providing both those services. You know, it acts like a one-stop shop. And just finally there, Doctor, how can South Africa take the fight several steps further in order to turn the tide against the two diseases? So there's a few things we need to do. The first thing is to strengthen our prevention activities, our prevention intervention. And that is really a whole set of activities. It's not just the Department of Health. All of society needs to come together, especially young people don't get infected with HIV. You know, we currently estimate in South Africa that about 1,500 young people, young women between 15 and 24 years of age, contract HIV. Now, that's come down since 2014, but it's still a very high number. So the first thing we need to do is prevent HIV transmission. 
And the second, of course, is to prevent the transmission of TB. So prevention, prevention, prevention is important for both diseases. Secondly, when people get infected, they must be screened, tested, and put on treatment as soon as possible. And we need to then assist them in the context of HIV to take meds because it's a chronic disease for the rest of their lives and be virally suppressed. And for TB, to complete the six months of treatment if they have drug-susceptible TB and be cured. And then, of course, we need to improve the social conditions that our people live under, decrease the inequities in society between the rich and the poor. And those are all the structural issues that we need to deal with, you know, because it has an impact on everything in society, not just uh, these two diseases. That is Dr. Jürgen Pele, Deputy General for Communicable Diseases and Non-Communicable Diseases, Mental Prevention and Rehabilitation at South Africa's Department of Health, speaking to Elizabeth Lidecha. Channel Africa has good news for you. We have extended our reach. If you have an iPad or iPhone, download the Channel Africa iOS app at itunes.apple.com. If you have a cell phone, then get our Android app at Google Store. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Seventeen forty-one Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Now, South African unions have planned a big demonstration at Ascom's Megawatt Park offices in Johannesburg in protest at the power utility's zero percent wage offer. The protest is planned for Thursday. The National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa (NUMSA) and the National Union of Mine Workers (NUM) held a joint media briefing in Kempton Park yesterday to discuss uh, details of their planned picket. While unions have set aside plans for a national shutdown, NUM and NUMSA showed a united front when briefing media about their joint plans to challenge ESCOM's 0% wage increase. Unions have scheduled lunchtime pickets where workers will demonstrate. Ivan Jim is the General Secretary of NUMSA. We will exhaust all options available to us legally before resorting to go on a strike. We have have scheduled pickets during lunchtime in different parts of the country where workers will demonstrate they are discussed with ESCOM for their provocative stance. On Thursday, there will be a big demonstration taking place at Megawatt Park during lunch as workers were resolute in our demands. The union's list of demands includes a meeting with the president and the energy minister. Jim explains. Furthermore, we demand an urgent meeting with ESCOM board, the president of the country, Cyril Ramaphosa, and the minister of energy, Jeff Khadebe. We demand that they meet with all three unions with speed to resolve the current impasse between ESCOM and unions and give workers their deserved wage increase. Jim says ESCOM's cash flow problems are perpetuated by a bloated management structure. He says ESCOM roughly has 500 top executives who earn an average income of up to 800,000 rand. Jim says ESCOM's austerity measures are an attack on workers. Both NUMSA and NUM are very clear that we're not part of supporting the austerity measures that are couched within the context of the new dawn. I mean, we were never consulted that the National Treasury will not budget to ensure that ESCOM as a critical institution 
in the center of minerals, energy, and finance complex which make up South African economy, that it cannot be resourced. The unions also plan to challenge the government's decision to sign the independent power producer contract. Jim says IPPs will cost more than the power already provided by power stations. He says the decision was reckless. So we're flagging that, yes, the issue of the IPPs, its connection basically destroy market sales for ESCOM. And on the other end, immediately, was ESCOM management is doing that and the board, they support the minister to sign, they are quick to say workers will not get an increase, when in fact their decision to sign IPPs is basically reckless. It is 17.44 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Digest. We're sending Matabula is in studio. He has your economics. Good afternoon. Thanks as Pumelele. Congo Republic will open a call for oil license tenders in September, followed by a promotion campaign at an oil conference coming up in South Africa in November. This is Congo's first licensing round since uh, oil prices rebounded significantly in 2017 after plummeting in 2014 due to global oversupply. Interest in the tender will act as a bellwether for the country's oil reserves and production now that the higher prices have made drilling more viable. Congo's energy industry has uh, staged an unlikely comeback thanks to major fines from Eni and Total. In Kenya, the biggest privately owned bank, CBA, has teamed up with a local financial technology company to speed up payments for goods and services delivered by suppliers. The new service will be hosted on an online platform run by FinTech Innovative Capital, a Kenyan firm which licenses the software from U.S. developer Prime Revenue. Late payments for goods and services is a common problem for small Kenyan businesses. Retailers take an average of five to seven months to pay suppliers. Firms uh, that contract small suppliers will get instant access to cash or cash equivalent to the orders, allowing them to pay their suppliers faster. Still in Kenya, Kenyan lawmaker Moses Kuria says he will take a proposed uh, law to parliament that seeks to ban exports of unprocessed coffee to boost farmers' earnings. The East African nation is a small producer of the, cro- of the crop, accounting for about a percent of the global annual output, but its top-quality Arabica beans are sought after by global roasters who use them to blend with other varieties. Raw coffee beans, which are Kenya's fifth biggest source of hard currency, are usually sold at a weekly auction in Nairobi or directly to buyers abroad who then roast them, package them and sell them at a hefty premium. Coffee exports and 214 million US dollars in the year too much. South Africa now job losses in the number is the number one reason why skills are transfer as becoming a challenge in the country. Speaking at the clothing and textile forum in Johannesburg, Simon Apple, a researcher with SACTU, has lashed out against the massive uh, closing of factories in the country that is bleeding skills transfer. He says uh, the massive unemployment rate in South Africa is the reason why skills are not being transferred. One of the major reasons why we fight job losses and try to prevent factories from either closing or liquidating or I suppose closing through whatever measure, whether it's retrenchments, 
when workers leave a factory, it's almost impossible to get them back. Uh, they'll come back on their own terms, but if you want to find those workers, it's incredibly hard because for some reason cell phone numbers change so quickly, addresses don't work and landlines are unreliable. The opportunity is, is there a better way to discover people who may want to come back into the market to offer skills? Business Against Crime South Africa says it's willing to help government to root out uh, cash in transit heights. The organization is one of the stakeholders that are being a briefing parliament as portfolio committee on how to tackle the scourge of cash and transit heists. Business Against Crimes acting CEO Billy Graham. Chairperson and colleagues, Business Against Crime is willing and ready to work with government and the private sector in this fight against crime because we understand that the efforts need to be stepped up. There are too many lives lost. The, the effect on the economy is just too large. The negative effect on employment is just unacceptable. And we need to work together to ensure that we can stabilize society in our country where people have employment and the economy can grow. And our role is to wait for your requests to assist you in this. Tunisia Central Bank has raised its in key interest rate from 5.75% to 6.75%, the second hike in three months to tackle inflation that has reached the highest levels since 1990. The bank's last rate increase was in March. The IMF says uh, uh, the anchoring inflation expectations through additional rate increases would be crucial if price pressures did not moderate quickly. Inflation is expected to reach about 9% by the end of the year for the first time. Financial indicators say the dollar trading at 9.98, Botswana Pula 10.11, Mozambique Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, uh, the dollar is at 3.7 Brazilian Real, 62.84 Russian Ruble, at 67.44 Indian Rupee, 6.4 Chinese Yuan, and uh, 13.2 South African Rands. European currencies, it's at uh, 74 pence to the British pound and 84 cents against the euro. Commodities gold, $1,295, platinum, $896 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil has gone down by just one notch now at $75.63 per barrel. And that's how it's looking. Thank you very much, Rusan. It's now time for Sports News. Here's Mosebode Makura. Good evening, sports fans. Now, Spain have confirmed that the country's Football Federation Sporting Director, Fernando Hiroa, will coach the team at the World Cup, replacing Julin Noptegui, who was sacked after his appointment as Real Madrid manager. Now, the 50-year-old Hiroa's only real coaching experience came when he was in charge of second division Spanish outfit Oviedo for one season. Now, Spain sacked coach Noptegui just two days before the team's opening game against Portugal at the World Cup. Now, the shock announcement was made by Spanish Football Federation Chief Luis Rubales at a press conference earlier today.
Well, former Mamelodi Sundowns midfielder Roger Fatumba believes that African teams, Egypt, Morocco, Nigeria, Senegal, as well as Tunisia, have enough quality to take them far at the FIFA World Cup tournament, which starts in Russia on Thursday. Fatumba was in the Cameroon national team that finished in the quarterfinal stages at the 1990 World Cup finals in Italy, adds that the fact that African teams did not encounter problems while preparing for the tournament argues well for them. Oh, personally, I believe that a team like Senegal, with the quality of play they have, uh, they can go far in this tournament. You also have uh, Egypt, even though uh, they are in the, in the building phase of their of their of their team, they have players like Salah, who is a very good player. Uh, yeah, for me, those are the two teams uh, I believe uh, they can manage to go far in that competition, but. Uh, you don't take any, anything away from Tunisia, Morocco. Uh, uh, they are a good team too. Fatumba says that football bosses at different African federations must make sure that there are no problems before and during the World Cup tournament if there are or rather if they want to see their national team succeeding at the world stage. Fatumba says problems they encountered midway through the 1990 World Cup tournament resulted in them getting knocked out in the quarterfinals. Africa, sometimes uh, people fighting for uh, for bonus and all that. Uh, those who are in charge of African football, especially federations, they have to make sure that when we go into those type of tournaments, uh, we have to take away all these negative aspects who sometimes disturb our team a lot. I remember even in 1990 when we reached the quarterfinal, we had a very good team. I believe that was the one chance of Africa to win the World Cup. But because of uh, too many problems uh, within the team and all that, we couldn't uh, manage to go to the semi-final, maybe win the World Cup. Uh, uh, Ghana also managed to reach the final in South Africa. Uh, because of that lack of concentration, we have, uh, they have a penalty at the right moment that they couldn't focus to put that ball in and go to the semi-final. And the World Cup is set to return to North Africa, um, America rather, for the, fir- uh, for the fourth time after FIFA members voted to award the right to host the 2026 tournament to a joint bid from the United States, Canada, as well as Mexico. Now the North Afri- um, American bid rather beat the one from Morocco, which was hoping to become just the second African country to host soccer's biggest international tournament. But the, the United bid received 134 out of the 203 votes cast at the FIFA Congress in Moscow, while uh, Morocco managed to get 65 votes. Now, the 2026 World Cup is said to be the first to feature 48 teams um, and 80 matches. And finally, FIFA President Gian Infantino says he will um, run rather for a re-election as head of football's governing body, speaking at the FIFA Congress in Moscow on the eve of the World Cup. The Swiss-Italian said he would present his candidacy for elections taking place in Paris in June next year. Now, Infantino was elected for the post back in February 2016. He says in his tenure, he has seen a significant improvement in the organization's finances. Well, those are sports news at the Sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective.
This is Africa Digest. It is 17.55 Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. Opposition parties in the DRC warned the government against trying to prevent Jean-Pierre Bemba from coming back. The UN General Assembly to vote on a resolution seeking protection for Palestinians in Gaza. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Spumelele Zondi, producer Luanda Mahomet, technical producer Didimala Makawe, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. On WhatsApp, we're on plus 27763327. Plus 27763327. We leave you with Fire on the Mountain by Asha.